welcome to the 77th episode of Total Pop Mode, your weekly comedy gaming podcast. My name is Will, and I also go by Hoodafunk, and I'm joined here by my good friend, co-host, and fellow gaming enthusiast, James, aka Mr. Bames. What's going on, everyone? Coming up this episode, we've got our weekly regular games catch-up, followed by the weekly gaming news, where we discuss big news in the world of Sony as part of their State of Play event, some Pokemon Company news following the release of Power Worlds, and then we'll cover some interesting Bloodborne news, James. Ooh, excitement. Although, to be fair, if it's not Bloodborne coming out on PC, it's not that exciting to me. (laughs) But hey, maybe it is. Maybe it is. We'll see. You gotta listen on to find out. And then we'll round off this episode with a new game on Completionist Corner. But before we talk about all of that, it's time to crack on with the socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on X by searching for at Total Pod Mode, all one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. Okay, James, it's time for the catch up. What have you been playing this week? I don't have a great deal to talk about this week, unfortunately. I did play a little bit more of Baldur's Gate 3 this week, but not really too much to talk about because it's kind of more of the same. I'm still exploring Baldur's Gate itself. Yeah. It's quite a, quite a large area of the map. There's a lot of things going on. And you can do this in the rest of the game as well, but in Baldur's Gate specifically, you can kind of do all of the quests in any order you want. And I assume that that will have permutations on how certain things actually end up going. Yeah. A lot of the cool stuff I've been doing is all main quest related, so it's kind of story spoilers. Um, One thing that's kind of interesting is that um, there's a lot more cats in the city. All right, okay. For whatever reason, all of the cats are either evil or like have a superiority complex, which I just find quite amusing. And because I can talk to animals. That's what I was just about to ask. I assume you've got the ability that allows you to do that. Yeah, 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 I'm a forest gnome, so I get that as part of my uh, daily perks, if you like. I can use that spell once per long rest and it lasts until I die. Okay, sure thing. So yeah, so I talk to all the animals and stuff. And yeah, the cats are just very funny. Being lazy, telling you to go kill rats so that they can feed. Okay, okay. But yeah, other than that, it's just really been a case of exploring the areas, picking up all random side quests, doing a few bits. Speaking of talking animals, that's a side quest I can talk about. I did talk to a um, carrier pigeon who was voiced by someone who sounds like an army sergeant. I am Commander Lightfeather, leader of the finest aerial communication regiment this side of the Chionza. One of the side missions involves finding some missing posts. Okay. And because I could talk to the carrier pigeon, he was like, oh yeah, it's all coming from over there and... uh, a lot of my cadets haven't come back and, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> so that was that was mildly amusing. I'm nearly at the level cap. The level cap is 12 in this game. I'm at level 11, feeling pretty powerful, which is great. And the story's progressing really nicely. I can see, as I've said many times before at this point, I can see how the replayability value is going to like be so good, mm. particularly doing an evil playthrough when I finally go back and do that at some point. 
it's going to be very fun to see how certain things work differently. Well, considering that we've just finished the Mass Effect trilogy, and uh, you and I both had some things to say about the ending and the way that that played out, do you get the sense in this game that the endings will truly diverge and actually result in fully different outcomes? Or are you seeing a path that you'll lead down and you'll eventually need to make a choice more akin to Mass Effect? So because I've looked at the achievements, I kind of know the number of endings that there are, if you see what I mean. Oh, okay, okay. They will diverge in what I believe will be a significant enough way that it will be interesting. And let's say you diverge down one of two paths, each of those paths can fork as well into various other factors, which may end up being very similar to one another, but I don't know until I get there. It certainly Mm. isn't going to be as crap as the Mass Effect 3 choice at the end was. Um, And... There will be more differences in a good and evil playthrough. I, I can just tell. I'm sure that a lot of the main quest lines will eventually lead kind of to the same place. You'll probably still have to kill the same main bosses, whether you're good, evil, or anything in between. But the way you okay. get to there will probably be a lot more nuanced in Baldur's Gate 3 than it was in Mass Effect 3 for sure. Fine, fine. Okay, well, I am looking forward to when you put some more time into that, to hearing just how the end plays out. Uh, I know you haven't been keen to uh, discuss it on the podcast for a while, but uh, off pod, I'm looking forward to figuring out just what happens. I'm more than happy to discuss it. I just feel that the game's new enough and it's got enough hype around it that I don't want to give any story stuff away. Maybe at some point I will diverge all information, but for now... I'm going to be nice to the people that don't want spoilers. All right, then, keep your secrets. Maybe by the time you've got to the end of Baldur's Gate, that might be a reasonable window. Is there, like, a defined window for spoilers? Um, shout out in the comments if you know what that is. Is there, like, a, a specific window after something's released? I know spoilers are kind of, in one sense, never okay for certain things because you can ruin a whole experience, but I wonder if there is a defined window for certain things where it's kind of okay for an internet spoiler if it's fairly generic. Provided you put some warnings in. I figure a year is probably legit. A year? Mm, Yeah, Um, okay, yeah, yeah. But it depends on the game, right? Like Death Stranding, I don't think you can spoil that ever. Because otherwise, I'm sorry for Completion's Corner last year when we did just that. But Hey, hey, people knew what they were listening to. Exactly, we We warned you. Six f***ing episodes rolling up to the end. If you you didn't want to hear the ending of Death Stranding, you could have pulled the brakes on any episode. Exactly. (laughs) You've only got yourselves to blame if you blame us for spoiling Death Stranding. But you see what I mean, though? Because Death Stranding, in my opinion, is a game where once you know what happens, it's kind of the replayability goes a little bit for me certainly from a story perspective from a gameplay perspective you can play that as much as you want you can't just sit someone down to watch star wars and then you tell them the darth vader's luke's father right off the bat exactly yeah Baldur's gate i don't think is probably quite like that which is why i say a year because it's game of the year right i didn't play it for a couple of months after it came out and i'm an avid rpg player there's plenty of people that probably haven't picked it up yet yourself included right so I'm just trying to be nice to that section of the audience, basically. <laughs> but yeah, so other than that, um, I haven't really played much else apart from uh, our Completionist Corner game, which we won't go into now. So that's me for the catch-up this week. How about you, man? What have you been playing? So this week, I've been playing a very new release. I've actually picked up a copy of Tekken 8. Tekken released on the 26th of January. So I've actually put some time into this. I'm a little surprised you picked this up, to be honest, because I remember we spoke about it and neither of us said we would day one it. So I'm bit surprised but pleasantly so a surprise to be sure but a welcome one it was mostly because of the hype of uh, one of our buddies liam he picked it up and that was the immediate fold over for me um, uh, the I monster hunter rise effect well. yes i know it well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it just it happens, doesn't it? When you've got a buddy that's uh, picked up a new game, the temptation to also play along when it's something that's either competitive or cooperative, it just wins out for me. I actually find that a lot of the games that I'll pick up prioritize games that my friends are playing over games that I necessarily want to play myself because playing a game with friends can really just make it so much better um, than your average experience. I don't disagree. I am the polar opposite of that, though. I'm a selfish gamer. <laughs> you hold off. <laughs> yeah. So how is it, dude? Tell all. Is it markedly better than 7? Uh, there's a few key differences in terms of the way that the combat works. So the main thing that I'd like to mention is the heat meter in the game, which is entirely new. And you might remember the rage system from Tekken 7, where it got to the point where if your fighter got to a certain percentage of low health, they would activate this kind of red shiny mode on your character. Yeah. And that would enable you to perform a special finishing move. And they were kind of like quite cinematic special moves that you could do. They have retained that for Tekken 8, but they've also added a new mode called Heat. And rather than Rage Mode that activates when you're low health, this mode actually starts with a full bar at the very start of the game. And you can choose to apply it whenever you want to at any point in the fight. Which just helps you press the offensive a bit more. It does, yeah. It's a full-on offensive move thing that you probably would typically engage if you've lost a lot of health down and you haven't managed to do much to other players because activating this mode it adds additional chip damage to characters as well as just increasing your general move set and you can do a bunch more different powerful moves as well throughout that Fair. it does change up the way that the game plays given that you've got this whole additional mode that has a potential window for dealing loads of extra damage and is it one and done or can you recharge it by attacking your enemies it's one and done per round okay so in a best yeah. of three you'd get it recharged at the start of each new stock if you like yeah okay Interesting. And whilst you're in that mode, you can do various different moves. And there are also different combos that you can do that will bring you into heat mode as well. So you can be doing a punch combo that will then activate heat mode halfway through and then you can finish it off with a special move. So the range of moves and combos that you're allowed to do uh, goes way much further than it did in Tekken 7. Okay. And I guess uh, my two favourite characters at the moment, uh, it's probably a combo between Azacena, who does a lot of juking and diving and dodging with her attacks. Is that a new one? Yeah, she's a new character. Yeah, yeah. so both of the characters that I'll mention are new characters. Okay. Azucena being able to duck past punches, dodge attacks, and then follow up with combos, and being able to have dodges almost in the middle of your combos is a really, really cool thing to be able to do with her. And the other character that I want to talk about is a guy called Victor. He's kind of like a shaded, suited dude with a electro katana, and he just has some really cool sword fighting combos as well. Uh, it's it's cool to see something that rivals Yoshimitsu, but plays very differently as well. Nice to see a bit more weaponry involved as well. Yes. Shouts to Kunimitsu and her knife back in the day. I am noticing a lot of use of weapons in this game. Nunchucks are on the cards now in Tekken. It's no longer just an Iron Fist tournament. They're bashing each other up with nunchucks. Hey, Soul Calibur's great. It's good to see Soul <laughs> Calibur 7's been uh, released in a Tekken suit. Even uh, Nina actually just brings straight out guns into the warfare because with her special rage mode ability, she can activate a move where she offloads a couple of pistol clips into someone. <laughs> So, nice. And for the most part, I'm just having a fun time checking out the different characters, fooling around with combos in the test mode. I haven't taken it online yet, and I haven't played through any of the character stories or the regular story mode in the game yet. At the moment, I'm just very keen to learn a character and get good with them so I can actually start to consider going online. And I think that once I've settled with a character and I've got some good combos down, then I'll be able to absolutely wipe the floor with the story mode or anything like that. Just by being intuitively a bit more familiar with the controls and 
figuring out likely combos just by feeling my way around a character instead of having to go into the moves list constantly and check all of the different stuff they can do. Yeah, it makes sense. The story's kind of centred around Devil Jin in this one, isn't it? So, Mishima nonsense. Mishima is absolutely still around. However, um, the demise of Heihachi happened in Tekken 7. Yeah, but as we called at the time when we covered it in Completionist Corner, he's probably still alive. Yeah, I know. He'll somehow still be alive. He'll be the secret final boss. You beat Devil Jin, everything looks great, and then suddenly you'll hear a slam on the floor, some electricity, and you have to fight Heihachi. Nani? Yeah, yeah, I can see it. I don't think it'll happen in this round of Tekken, but I feel like at some point in a DLC down the line, they'll drop Hayachi back into the game. Yeah. I'd be very surprised if it wasn't the case. He'll certainly be a playable character, even if he's not in the story. Yeah, I'm sure that they'll bring him back as a playable character at some point, because he's just such a serious favourite. It's kind of like printing free money at that point for themselves if they release Hayachi at some point. Yeah, and I'm sure there's some people in competitive that want to... I know he's not a top-tier character, but I'm sure there's some people in competitive that will be like we want Heihachi back. Heihachi's been in it for a long time and um, he's kind of missing from the roster. And speaking of characters that are missing from the roster, Eddie Gordo is also uh, out of the base roster for this game. However, he has been confirmed as the first DLC character that's going into the game. So uh, looking forward to getting back and playing in the sandals of my man Eddie Gordo as well. But I gotta say, other than that, I don't have a great deal to talk about with Tekken. Still very much dipping my toes into it, and I look forward to covering it at some point next week, maybe. And with all of that said, it's time to move on to the weekly gaming news. So our first article today. The PlayStation State of Play event took place this week on the 31st of January. So a couple of the main events, according to me. The first one up that I'd like to talk about, of course, is Death Stranding 2. A game that I know you're incredibly hyped for because you love Death Stranding 1. One of your favourite games. I think so, yeah. I could probably list it up in that category, I think. I had a really good time playing through it the first time around and the second time around on Completionist Corner. And James, I've got to say, Kojima has somehow done it again. He has absolutely flummoxed me in terms of what the hell is going on in this game. I have to say that doesn't surprise me because Kojima's <laughs> Kojima. Off the wall. But I am interested in how that would work because the end of Death Stranding was pretty wild and I don't really know how it's going to continue or even where it's going to go, frankly. On the release of Death Stranding 1, I spent the entire trailer completely confused as to what was going on at all. And even with the now added context of Death Stranding 1 in place for me, I still was unable to surmise what is going on in the storyline. Death Stranding 1 comprised all of America, or was supposed to anyway, as you travel across the United States, rebuilding America. We get a bit of a reveal in this trailer because they actually mentioned that they're going to Mexico. I'm also wondering whether the line finishes at Mexico, or whether there will be other points in the world that we can also travel to. Well, if they're heading south to Mexico, surely the logical next step would be South America, right? Well, who knows? Or the Caribbean, baby. Wouldn't it be interesting to see what landscapes look like in a kind of Death Stranding version that was based outside of America? I think it'd be really interesting to see what they do with the change of environment. Although there were quite a few different biomes covered in Death Stranding 1, I'd really like to see how they can manage to vary those in a new game. And you do get a little sense of that in the trailer. You see different environmental hazards that we haven't seen previously. We see something that resembles a flood in the game. A river begins to overflow and it actually destroys one of the bridges that's been constructed in the game as well. That's an interesting mechanic. It does kind of muck around with the 
permanence of some of the structures that you could install in the game. Although you do need to keep repairing them, a lot of the structures would last a long time. But if you're regularly experiencing floods in certain areas, then you can never really count on your equipment being there when you come back. Unless you can build flood barriers and things like that. Mm, yeah, that's a good decision. More construction. We also see the return of a couple familiar faces, other than Sandporter Bridges, of course. So we see Fragile in the game, who now appears to be working for a new company known as Drawbridge. And apparently uh, they're like a new civilian outfit that are operating outside of the regular UCA coverage, which of course is the network that you were building before. So there's a new faction in the game. We also see uh, the return of Higgs at some point. Higgs has survived the old Death Stranding apocalypse scenario that we had previously. Okay. And we also see a scene early on in the trailer of Fragile actually apparently resurrecting him from some sort of tomb that he was in. I guess he was somehow suspended and kept alive. Why'd Fragile do that? I have no idea. I don't think it was necessarily implied that she was the one that put him in it, but she was the one cutting him out of it at the beginning of the trailer, uh, along with another character who we haven't been introduced to yet. But she wanted him dead more than anyone. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. Are. This is what I mean. Like, I'm, I'm not pretending that any of this is going to make sense or I'm going to have any answers for you because, uh, as I say, with this trailer, all it does is generate more questions in my head rather than solve any of the questions that I already had about the game. Higgs also, and, and you have to check this out in the trailer, has a new weapon in the game. He seems to be armed with like an electric guitar gun that he uses to great effect. He like strum a sweet little tune and then shoot a bunch of guys with it. It's very interesting. <laughs> It obviously looks like a heavily modified uh, robotic guitar. It isn't just like a straight up like Gibson or a Les Paul or something. Um, For some reason I'm picturing Flying V. (laughs) It's closer to a Flying V than any of the other um, types that I just described. But that is, it's got a unique style to it. It does seem more zany than the first Death Stranding. And it does seem like we're going to be experiencing uh, a whole load more wacky adventures for Sam Porter Bridges. That's for sure. Two things. Expect a lawsuit from Rare because Donkey Kong 64 did that shit first. <laughs> but in all seriousness, though, I don't know how I feel about a more zany Death Stranding. I'm not sure. I'd, I'd need to see more before I form too big an opinion on it. You would definitely have to watch the trailer. It doesn't feel like the tone has drastically shifted, but it is still very weird. Very weird. If it's like a little bit of Kojima bollocks sprinkled in there, I'm down. But if it's like Saints Row suddenly, in my mind will kind of ruin the ambience of the game, which is a big thing. The ambience is like 90% of the game. They also do talk about being on a ship for portions of the game as well. And I'd be interested to know where that actually takes you. That brings the Caribbean back onto the table, genuinely. Yeah, yeah. But it does. We'll could really also, have to see. could also do South America, I suppose. But there was a boat in the first one, right? So it could just be something as simple as crossing from Area 1 to Area 2. We just don't know. They just seem to make a larger deal out of it in this trailer, not that they made any deal out of it in any sort of initial promo. But the fact that they've gone into quite an extensive detail of the boat, they even show you part of the crew quarters in the trailer, as well as even showing you Sam's apartment with like his weapons rack and things like that. There's a lot of familiar imagery that you'll recognize from the first game just implanted into the ship. Maybe it's your hub then. Hey, it could well be if that's where we end up going. Maybe you use the ship as your hub and travel around different countries. That would be awesome. Could be, yeah. Not just Mexico, could be worldwide in that instance. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm wondering. Mexico was named in the trailer, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's just Mexico. It could be anywhere. Mexico is the logical first step. 
it borders. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I mean, I could go on all episode uh, about my excitement for Death Stranding 2. Uh, we probably shouldn't linger on it for too long, considering we're actually talking about the PlayStation State of Play event. So I'll bring us on to a bit more footage for Dragon's Dogma 2, which I've got to say, considering the earlier footage we saw, which I think was at the Summer Games Fest. Was it at the Summer Games Fest or was it at the Game Awards? I can't remember, but we did get to see some initial footage of it. And we both said that we hadn't noticed a great deal of change from the first game in terms of graphics and things like that the gameplay looks remarkably familiar as well however i will say in this new trailer you definitely get a sense that they've changed things up and improved things in a big way as well the melee combat in the game looks really satisfying and the transitions between grabbing climbing up and then doing melee attacks off of enemies as well as some of the more combat mage techniques you can use uh, you can use magical weapons and abilities to quickly mount enemies and do big damage it does look like you can play a really active part in combat regardless of what character you play and i'm really excited to make my own character in that game and explore some of the systems because although i haven't played dragon's dogma one properly yet i have heard that there's a really good amount of variation in terms of the classes you can create there and if i'm just going to go ahead and jump into dragon's dogma 2 i'm sure that they'll have just improved upon that even more yeah, in my limited experience with Dragon's Dogma 1, there's certainly loads of options, but you have to know what you're doing to create an optimal build. You can sort mm. of make something quite shit depending on what you do. But I guess it's all experimenting, and I think you can respec, so it should be fine. I'm more interested to see how the pawn system works. I'm hoping that the um, the AI is a little better with it. You'll have to remind me about this pawn system. I remember you've described it to me before, but the moment that you start talking about the pawn system, my head just goes to the, the naughty content, and I just immediately forget everything else. I can't lie. You little pervert. That's fair enough. So you create a sort of second character, if you like, who um, is called your pawn, P-A-W-N. Yes. And yeah. um, you pick their class and you pick how they level up and stuff. Typical examples are if you're a mage, you'll build a tank pawn so that it synergizes nicely with your build. Likewise, if you're a tank, you might build a healer. If you're an archer, you might build a rogue or something that can draw enemies' attention but doesn't get hit too much. There's all sorts Fine. of things you can do with it. But the AI, it learns what role it's going to play by itself. I think you can influence it in certain ways, but I found it very, very hard to understand and actually do effectively. Okay. My, my pawns just ended up collecting items. That was all they did. They'd stop <laughs> fighting an enemy to go pick up a nut. Oh, right, right. And stuff like that. Um, so hopefully it's a little bit more user-friendly and I don't want it to be like super easy to manipulate because I think there should be a challenge to it to yeah. get the satisfaction of making a good pawn. But I'd like it to be a little bit more tutored, I guess. I'd like to know a little bit more about how you can affect it instead of just sitting in a chair and answering mm. questions to try and change their personality. Well, it all remains to be seen just how they'll handle that in the system. They may even choose to streamline it instead. But uh, I am very interested in terms of actually playing this game, i got to say. I think for fans of third-person adventure fighting games, this one, it definitely rings a lot of familiar bells. It obviously does look very familiar to Dragon's Dogma 1, but I have the feeling that this has the potential off the back of more popular recent fantasy franchise games to actually hook in a larger audience this time around. And I think that this one's going to do pretty well, provided that it actually functions well as a game and isn't a total glitch fest, which I'm somewhat reluctant to believe is going to be the case. Well, it's Capcom, right? Yeah, exactly that. If the combat is better than it was in the first one, 
that'll pique my interest quite a bit because the combat's okay in the first one but it's not the best old game mm. though so pinch of salt i guess i'll keep an eye on it although i won't pick it up until i finish the first one because that's just how i roll these days coming up on the rest of the showcase another game that i wanted to talk about is rise of the ronin uh which is a game that we talked a little bit about on a previous podcast episode again kind of going back to one of those jeff Keeley events i can never quite remember which one's which i feel like that one was more recent so that was probably the game awards that was probably the game awards was it okay yes so we got a little bit of a peek at rise of the ronin and uh following on at this showcase we got a much bigger peek at rise of the ronin in terms of gameplay which was really cool immediately i was noticing that the world seems quite large and explorable and in order to explore that world you're given quite a few different traversal options as well there's actually a section that i saw where your character is able to jump off a tall structure use a hang glider type thing to fly across the map and then jump onto their horse fairly seamlessly as they were traveling so there's a lot of emphasis on traversal at speed and i really like the look of that that was a good warm-up to the start of the trailer Uh, other than that you did get a good look at the combat as well and it has a parrying system that looks similar to something like Sekiro or similar titles like that there is a stance breaking system there are two bars one to represent health and one to represent what I assume is posture or poise or whatever and there were obviously finishing killing blows once you'd broken that poise as well oh so Sekiro okay cool yeah yeah yeah. like I said yeah It's, it's all familiar stuff but it's cool to see also like Sekiro you've also got a grappling hook however you get to see some interesting functionality that you do didn't get in Sekiro which is you can actually use it offensively as well there is a stealth mechanic in this game you can actually use your grappling hook to latch enemies off of high places so if you don't want to sneak up into a tower for instance you can use your grappling hook to grab an enemy and pull them off and then assassinate them from stealth still uh so that is quite a cool addition in the game I like the sound of being able to do those sorts of moves as well and seeing a different use for the grappling hook is cool. So it's Sekiro mixed with Just Cause. That's what that's what I'm hearing when you say <laughs> this. <laughs> I think you're 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 oversimplifying it perhaps a little bit there. But uh, there is some similarities, I guess. Yeah, except that this is much more of a stealth mechanic, whereas I don't think you could ever really be stealthy ever in Just Cause. No, that game's that not was, about stealth. Yeah, no. that game's about going loud and blowing shit up. Yeah, but all the whole moving quickly traversal at pace with grappling hooks and stuff, that's a very Just Cause. Yeah. Hopefully better than Just Cause, I might add. The comparisons to Just Cause in terms of having a grappling hook, that's where it ends. Um, The rest of it is much more familiar territory, as I mentioned, to something like Ghost of Tsushima, Sekiro, Wolong, or similar titles like that. So I do think that this game's going to be really up your street. And the other two games on my list that I wanted to move on to are actually from the same franchise, and I'll talk about the one that I hadn't heard so much about first. Uh, so that is Silent Hill The Short Message, which looks to be a new FPS Silent Hill title. Is this the one that's free to play? Or is, is allegedly, it free to play? Is there's, there's one I, I, saw, I saw an article that said like there's a, allegedly going to be like a free to play Silent Hill game. Is it called Last Message? Oh yeah, it could be this, because I thought it was called The Last Message, but it's The Short Message here. Maybe it is. Okay, okay. Oh, I had no idea that it was actually free to play. I'm pretty sure that I saw an article that said it was going to be free to play. Oh, okay. Well, that's even more of a reason to be interested. So this game definitely looks like it borrows a lot from the Silent Hill PT release, uh, the demo for an upcoming now cancelled Silent Hill project by Hideo Kojima and Guillermo del Toro. It's also 
I think playing on perhaps a little bit of the popularity of the recent Resident Evil FPS titles, Resident Evil 7 and RE Village. We're calling 7 an FPS? It's it's, it's a first person. We can yeah. drop the S, but it's yeah. still a first person. <laughs> and it has shooting in it. Yeah, it's shooting is a key component of the gameplay, I guess. Yeah. So it definitely looks like uh, that's kind of where it's reaching from. I'm seeing a lot of creepy imagery, and it looks like it'd be really immersive to play that from a new perspective. Although I say new perspective, perspective silent hill has actually gone down the fps route before actually and in this case you really can just drop the s because there was no shooting involved in the first person (laughs) sections but in silent hill for the room you would walk around your own apartment and have a few ghostly encounters whereas this game is or looks to be entirely from that perspective fair play and is it james sunderland still no it's an entirely new character um typically with silent hill games they vary up the protagonist each time it's never necessarily set on just one person okay fair enough and uh yeah this does look to be a new character a female character for the second time in the series you only get very glimpsing shots of the character or what i presume is your character one thing that had me slightly concerned about this was it does feature a speaking protagonist your character does speak in the game and i find that a lot of the time that can kind of take you out of the shoes of your character a lot if they're just kind of constantly muttering their own thoughts about things that you're experiencing sometimes it doesn't leave room for you to have your own interpretations or experiences of the game yeah i know what you mean it can go both ways if it's done well it's really good but yeah i know what you mean so a good example is actually going back to resident evil 7 i think ethan winters uh in 7 and village did a really good job of speaking at the right times but not going too much whereas I am a little bit worried that this game might go the route of a character reacting verbally to everything that you see in the game or just speaking too much in general and I'll be a little bit worried uh, about that, especially given recent trends of having weirdly jarring protagonists voicing their thoughts the whole time. So I would just hope that they don't go overboard on that aspect of the game because typically, unless you're in cutscenes, the characters have been pretty quiet and I think that that's always been a good decision in terms of the, the making of the game for that to be the case. We'll have to see. And the very last game that I wanted to talk about, the Silent Hill 2 Remake Combat trailer also dropped as part of the state of play, which was quite a cool thing to see, I guess. I mean, it is evident that they have improved the melee combat in the game. It also does resemble the Callisto Protocol's combat system quite a bit as well, which I've got mixed feelings about. It really does depend, I suppose, on just how much they lock you into those combat scenarios in the same way that Callisto Protocol did. But it looks like a sort of setting where you lock onto a character, you're able to freely control their movement, and you can swing and dodge attacks. It'll okay. be an interesting one to see how that actually plays out. I have a feeling that it might get quite repetitive, but saying that, the melee combat in Silent Hill 2 was incredibly repetitive, depending on which enemies you were fighting as well. There wasn't anything special about it. Well, and also combat's not really a focus of that game, right? It's not. In a lot of cases, you want to be avoiding enemies, yeah. and I just hope that they've retained that in the game rather than forcing you into encounters because in my mind that was one of the biggest mistakes that Callisto Protocol made was filtering you into a lot of corridors where you couldn't get around the enemy and the moment that you were hit you were locked into combat with them in a way yeah whereas this game just like resident evil it needs to kind of retain that conserving ammunition and running away from enemies because enemies are scarier rather than this kind of gung-ho character that's just beating the shit out of every zombie they come across with a pipe. Yeah, exactly. And well, Silent Hill is also, it's more about the psychology from what I've seen and yes. I haven't really played it, but I've seen others play it a little bit. It's more about the psychology. You don't need to have it 
all guns blazing. Speaking of all guns blazing, though, we did actually see a little bit of footage of some of the weapon usage as well. We saw pistol firing, what a potentially a shotgun firing, uh, a hunting rifle as well. Fairly standard sort of zombie fare. Yeah, the kind of stuff that you're used to seeing in, in those sorts of things, but also um, a lot of familiar stuff from the original game as well. What I will say about that is that the aiming didn't look particularly good, but again, I think that that only stands from a positive perspective. It's not like your character is like some military trained guy that's used to handling weapons all the time. Um, I think this is probably for James Sunderland, perhaps the first time he's fired a lot of these <laughs> weapons. I wouldn't put it past the game to make shooting somewhat of a challenge. And again, it'll only just stand to reinforce the fact that a lot of the time, whenever possible, you should be running away from these things until you get locked in a room with a bunch of them and you need to defend yourself. And uh, much like the Silent Hill title before that, we also saw a lot of the creepy imagery and familiar enemy designs in the game it all looks really good i'm looking forward to seeing that remake i don't think i'm going to rush out and pick that one up i think there's some other titles that i'd like to play before that you said that about tekken 8 though i did i did i did and i know that you've been looking forward to silent hill for ages i have been looking forward to silent hill for ages yeah i think the thing that won't bend my arm is that no one else i know is probably going to pick this one up that's fair yeah i think i'm like the only silent hill fan out of my friends group um mostly due to exposure reasons i think more than anything but uh yeah so i don't think i'll have anything bending my arm from that perspective but you know i I might well be tempted by this one who knows just looking at it though it is just a very much a clean remake with a few added systems in the game i'm not seeing a huge variation in terms of some of the puzzles and things like that if the game packs in a fair amount of additional content in the same style as resident evil 4 remake then i might be tempted but i think for the most part this is a fairly straight conversion fair enough fair enough final question for me on this uh do we have a release date yet do you know what i can't give you an honest answer to that question i really didn't look to see if there was a release date i think i just watched the uh the trailers in sequence but i really didn't actually take a look just had a quick look mate just says 2024 so still nothing unfortunately okay. that's a shame oh. We've still got a ways to wait. I mean, that could be any time within the next 10 months. Exactly. (laughs) Hopefully they're giving themselves room to breathe and making sure this is the best experience it can possibly be. I've got my fingers crossed and uh, all we can do is hope for the best. Okay, so that's about it for our coverage of the PlayStation State of Play and it's time to move on to our second article of the week. The Pokemon Company makes an official statement on Pal World with the quotes, we intend to investigate. This does not surprise me at all, having seen some of the pals that I hadn't seen previously. Some of them are literally exactly the same. (laughs) Not quite literally, but very heavily, almost literally. I I I honestly think that is where a lot of the stuff is coming from. And honestly, I don't necessarily know how serious Nintendo is actually taking this at the moment, because this statement is actually more, rather than to address the release of Power World, it's actually to address the amount of inquiries that they've received as a result of Power World. And they put it in their statement as just another company's game released in January 2024. So they never actually name Power World, but they say that they've received many inquiries regarding that release. And we have not granted any permission for the use of Pokemon intellectual property or assets in the game. Nintendo intend to investigate and take appropriate measures to address any acts that infringe upon intellectual property rights related to the Pokemon. And then they go on to say they'll continue to cherish and nurture each and every Pokemon in this world and bring the world together through Pokemon in the future. So uh, without that bit at the end, it sounds like 
Number one, they're not naming the company. They're being very careful in legal terms. Number two, they're also just saying that they intend to investigate. They're not saying that there is any sort of thing that they've detected or that they actually are seeking to do anything. It just says that they'll investigate and take appropriate measures. Yeah, I think it would just be a case if they have a word about some of them. Just like... <laughs> Most because you've got to change fine, the right? ears on that Lucario ripoff. You've got to like, do <laughs> most of them are fine, right? But it's just like there's a couple there, just maybe make their face a little rounder, maybe don't give it exactly the same eyes. Yeah, I think the, the thing is, and what a lot of people have discovered by importing these models into the model editors is that some of the similarities between the models are just far too striking to not have been somehow edited from the original models. I think there's a lot of stuff in there where they're suggesting that they've taken the original model from the Pokemon, imported it in, created a new mesh for it, and then edited the model from there. And in a lot of cases, the models have been slightly adjusted. They'll have uh, a slightly different stance. Their legs will be ever so slightly skinnier. But I can't deny there has been a lot of evidence I've seen on the internet recently where they've dragged and dropped the models over each other. And you can almost certainly see uh, like a real similarity between them that is really hard to deny i don't think it'll be a case of we're going to sue you and take down your game i think it'll be have a look at those ones just maybe tweet them a bit otherwise we're going to have problems (laughs) because nintendo are very litigious they do like to go after people oh 100 percent yeah i mean there is another news article actually coincidentally to this that the pokemon company are actually chasing another company uh, for copyright infringement based on Pokemon, uh, a game called PokerZoo. <laughs> you know, at least make the name a little different, guys. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's also some direct references to Pokemon within the game as well. So that one, I feel like they truly have a case with. With Power World, I feel like it's a bit more nebulous. Even in the case of the Lucario edited Pokemon and things like that, I'm not sure whether you can actually copyright that design uh given the adjustments that they've made to it i think as you're absolutely correctly identified it does bear a striking resemblance however from a legal perspective i do think the power world might just get away with this one honestly only time will tell and speaking of copyright cases this week our third article of the day also relates to that however it's a different company this time thankfully an article from vg247 sony pumps the brakes on bloodborne cart but that doesn't mean it's outright cancelled so bloodborne cart is actually pretty much a joke game at this point i think we can say and it very much came off of the back of the bloodborne demake that was announced on pc and created by twitter user botster and there was a lot of intrigue around this game because it was a fully playable game i think up until the point of gascoin where they had essentially recreated the ps4 title bloodborne all using playstation 1 available technology at the time so it very heavily resembles a playstation 1 title even down to some of the design choices and certain aspects of the game were changed and crucially the soundtrack but also things like the equipment system in the game as well it was all changed to feel much more like the way they would have handled it in a playstation 1 game uh, where you're scrolling through the items one by one rather than having like a large detailed menu that you're able to have on these higher resolution displays now so this game was clearly made with a lot of love for bloodborne people were getting very excited by the actual real viable release of bloodborne cart as well which looked to be a bloodborne themed recreation of something like super mario kart or crash team racing And it featured a lot of familiar characters in the game, including bosses, player characters and NPCs, racing through Yharnam-themed levels and different stages, and it honestly looked to be really, really fun. And it is still apparently coming out, but it's only after Sony have had a word with the creator Botster and said that you need to remove and strip out all of the Bloodborne branding. 
So change the game completely. Well, um, so the official statement from the game creator said that long story short, I need to scrub the branding off of what was previously known as Bloodboard Cart, which we will do, but that requires a short delay. Don't worry, the game is still coming out. It'll just look slightly different. So it's going to be interesting to see what logo changes they have to make. Are they going to have to make some outright different character changes? Are we going to lose certain voice lines? Yeah, it will be interesting. They're probably just going to name it BB Cart. I think that even that will be too close. I think that now that Sony are actually speaking uh, to the creator, I feel like they'll do a real honest job of trying to really differentiate this now. The will or no, real ones no. And honestly, they must have absolutely been anticipating this coming anyway. There's no way that they were actually going to get away with making a, a release of something that is so heavily taken from Bloodborne. I mean, if it's literally called Bloodborne Cart as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean... Do you know what Sony should honestly do at this point? Is just hire this person. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the best hey, way to do it. says they won't, right? They may well do. But no, I thought that was just another interesting story. I know it's something that both of us had kind of had our eyes on for a while. Uh, it's interesting that Sony took so long in order to jump on this, considering that we were getting so close to the game's release. But I guess also at that point, you can't really pre-get in contact with someone and make any sort of legal threat if they aren't even close to actually releasing the game or have even officially confirmed when they'll be releasing it. I mean, they probably just thought that it was getting a little bit too real now. It's it's one thing if it's a parody or a meme or something, but now that it's actually potentially going to make someone else some money, just cool the jets a little bit, you know? Well, there we have it. That is the news for this week. And I think it's time that we moved on to Completionist Corner. Here we go for the Completionist's Corner. This week, following the great success of completing the Mass Effect trilogy in the last episode, James and I were looking for a new game to play, and we both settled on Devil May Cry 5. Now, this is a title that I did have a tiny bit of prior experience with, only just completing a handful of levels and then putting it down. I think, uh, honestly, it got wiped off the cards by something like God of War, I'm tempted to say. I picked up God of War shortly after picking up Devil May Cry 5, and it was almost instantly forgotten, sadly. But what I'll say is I definitely have a lot more brand familiarity with the God of War titles. I've played and completed Devil May Cry 1. I've played a handful of hours into 2, had them played 3, completed 4 a long, long time ago, but it's nowhere near my familiarity with the God of War titles, which all of them I've completed multiple times and had a great time every time through. Is 4 just DMC, or is that different? No, there is there is Devil May Cry 1, 2, 3, 4, and DMC, um, which actually I didn't mention, but I have also put a very small handful of hours into as well and had a good yeah, we time we played with. through the first couple of levels of that one. So, um, like I said, it's very sporadic experience with these titles, and considering the release of God of War, I very happily and quickly jumped on that instead. Yeah, and I've played a one- one level of Devil May Cry 1, none of 2, none of 3, none of 4, maybe the first two or three levels of DMC, and that's it. Right, okay, so you are very unfamiliar with this series as well. Yes. So, seeing as we're starting off on Devil May Cry 5, some of you might be wondering about the events of Devil May Cry 1-4. to 4. Not to fear, because before we start our coverage of Devil May Cry 5, let's do a little recap of the story so far. A long time before the events of Devil May Cry 1, a demon swordmaster known as the Dark Knight Sparda betrayed the other demons in the underworld and fought the Emperor of the Underworld known as Mundus in order to save humanity and seal away the demonic underworld realm. As time passed on, memories and tales of Sparda's heroic deeds faded from memory uh, and 2,000 years following the battle, the seal of the underworld had begun to weaken. 
As revenge for the betrayal, the demon Emperor Mundus sent demons to attack Sparda's wife, Eva, and their two twin sons. Sparda had mysteriously disappeared prior to Mundus's act of revenge, meaning Eva was defenseless against the demons, and she perished. One of Sparda's sons, known as Virgil, went missing following this attack, and the only apparent survivor of the demon attack was Sparda's other son, Dante. Decades later, Dante was reunited with his twin brother Virgil, who had survived all these years alone using his father's sword, the demon blade Yamato. Virgil was set on gaining more power, seeking to unlock the power of Sparda. In part due to these ambitions, Virgil was also being manipulated by an evil mad scholar known as Arkham. Arkham also sought to obtain demonic powers and knew that by unlocking Sparda's power, the seal on the underworld would be further weakened. Virgil's brother Dante sets out to stop both Virgil and Arkham's plans. During Dante's mission, he also meets a demon hunter named Lady, who is also seeking revenge against Arkham due to him killing her mother. On discovering he was being used by Arkham, Virgil joins up with Dante to fight against the deluded scholar. The alliance between Dante and Virgil was a short one, and eventually they fought again, after being unable to reconcile their differences. In the end, Dante was victorious and Virgil, now defeated, fell back into the underworld. Soon after these events, Dante opened up a shop that he would call Devil May Cry, which appeared to most to operate as a handyman service, but was actually a front for Dante's real business, kicking demon ass. After setting up shop, a mysterious woman known as Trish enters, who bears a strong resemblance to Dante's mother, Eva. Trish leads Dante to a place called Mallet Island, where the underworld Emperor Mundus has been sealed away. On Manet Island, Dante also runs into Virgil again, this time warped into a demon called Nello Angelo, and after seeing the cruelty Mundus was capable of, Dante's rage boiled over, and the devil powers Dante had inherited from his demon father were finally unleashed. Dante then used these powers to seal Mundus away once again, and after forcing Mundus into a rather reluctant nap time, Dante then returned to doing what he does best, with both Trish and Lady at his side. For a while, there was peace in the world, but that would hardly make for a fun video game, right? Before long, a Sparda-worshipping cult known as the Order of the Sword sought to control the human world using demonic forces. The part about using demon powers, however, was unbeknownst to many of the Order's followers. When Dante heard word of these nefarious plans, he travelled to the cult base and assassinated the Order leader, Sanctus. The Order didn't take this attack lightly and soon dispatched a holy knight called Nero to find and kill Dante. During his pursuit, Nero learns of the true goals and methods of the Order, however because of this discovery, he is killed by the cult scientist Agnes. In a surprise turn of events, it is revealed that the Order is actually in possession of Virgil's sword, Yamato. On Nero's death, the sword resonates with him, causing him to revive with newly gained demonic powers in the form of a devil hand. The binding of the devil's sword Yamato with Nero is proof that the blood of Sparda flows through Nero's veins also. During the events of Devil May Cry 4, Nero's lover Kyrie was taken hostage by the cult, and the leader Sanctus is also revived using demon powers. With the help of Dante, Nero is able to defeat Sanctus and anything else the cult is able to throw at them before finally rescuing Kyrie. After the battle, Nero and Dante part ways, both continuing to fight against demons invading the human world. The events of Devil May Cry 5 take place years later following the events just described and this time the world faces an evil surpassing any other it has seen so far. The game begins as we see a giant tree-like structure towering above buildings in the middle of a street, surrounded by crowds of worried-looking citizens. A man in the crowd, known as Morrison, looks at the imposing mass and expresses concern that his pal Dante seems to have trouble dealing with this latest threat. The scene cuts to inside the tree, where Dante is duking it out with the latest demon on the block, 
and slightly lagging behind is Nero, who seems to have misplaced his demon arm and is now missing his right arm entirely. Nero questions why he has been brought here, as Dante is seemingly doing just fine fighting against the latest and greatest underworld offering. A low and strained voice answers Nero, advising that we shouldn't underestimate this demon. The voice belongs to a new and mysterious character called V, who then reminds Nero that the demon Dante is facing is actually the very same one who took his devil arm. Both Nero and V make their way through the vast tree to reach Dante, who is still battling with the demon in a large throne chamber. Along the way, Nero fights through groups of demons known as Impusas, who resemble winged praying mantises with large bulbous abdomens and heads adorned with two spiky ball sacks. Fine description. I couldn't really think of any more of a flattering way to describe them. (laughs) I thought that the spiky ball sacks was pretty apt. It does look like they've just kind of mounted a pair on top of their forehead. Maybe just one upside down ball sack. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. With the two balls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you're right there. Yeah, I'm I'm getting my plurals wrong. One ball sack, two balls. Yeah, they look like bollocks. That's what we're getting at. (laughs) It's really important that we understand that you know that these creatures look like they have testicles on their forehead. The powerful demon residing in the main chamber is clearly not feeling the strain of battle against Dante, as when Nero and V arrive, the demon is still sat on his dark throne, looking bored and using his powers to summon forth a plethora of attacks by barely lifting a finger. Literally sitting there, head in hand, just leaning on his arm, just like, this is nonsense. Occasionally he just raises his arm and flicks his wrist to cause like a massive spell to appear and slow you down or blow you away. Proper cash. Nero enters the arena, noticing the unconscious bodies of Dante's companions, Trish and Lady, laying to the side. Dante is knocked back by the demon, shattering his sword, known as Rebellion, in the process. Nero arrives just in the nick of time to continue the fight. Although Nero's sword skills are powerful, they are still no match for this as-of-yet-unnamed new foe, and just like Dante, we are also sent packing in short order. Dante manages to recover just in time to prevent the throne demon from executing Nero and tells V to take Nero and escape whilst he holds off the demon from another attack. Dante at this point even calls Nero dead weight, which is a serious insult to the ever-confident and cocky Nero, who we should say at this point is who we are controlling in this prologue mission. Yes, that's right. As the structure begins to crumble upon them, V is able to drag Nero away, leaving Dante to fight. Nero is reluctant to leave. However, V tells him that he must become stronger in order to defeat this powerful demon king, who we'll now refer to as Urizen for the rest of our coverage. Although technically he doesn't have a name. That's the name we'll give him for now, just so people can follow. (laughs) It's also the name the game gives him, we didn't just make that s*** up. With Dante now left to continue his losing battle with Urizen, Nero and V escape from the tree and make their way back down to street level, where they see Morrison, the old man who indicated he was an old friend of Dante's. V warns Morrison to run away, as at this point, Dante is merely buying time before the evil spreads. And just as he says this, large dark tendrils equipped with sharp, needle-like tips protrude from the ground and begin impaling any nearby citizens. As the corruption continues to spread, the three characters retreat to safety, overwhelmed by the sheer force and power that the Demon King is able to wield. At this point, there is a time skip in the game where we jump forward a month after the battle with Urizen with Nero now in partnership with a woman called Nico, who is the granddaughter of the legendary gunsmith who crafted Dante's iconic dual guns, Ebony and Ivory. She also happens to be the daughter of Agnes, who was the scientist belonging to the Sparta-worshipping cult, the Order of the Sword. Nico and Nero are tearing down the deserted street in a van marked with the neon Devil May Cry sign. An homage to Dante's handyman shop, no doubt. 
especially given what this van is in the game. I think that at this point, Nero is essentially just operating an extended branch of the Devil May Cry yeah. services. And uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Nico's character in this, because she is a new face to the series. And I've got to say, she's probably one of my favorite characters so far in the game. Really? And uh, I'm getting the impression that that is not the opinion that you share of Nico. <laughs> I'm not a fan of either of these two. I think Nero is very cringe. Like, do you I, think I, so? I really do. Nico's better. She's she basically she acts as like um, the mechanic for your upgrades and things like that. And with yeah. Nero in particular, she actually can craft him custom arms, which we'll get into a bit more later on. But general vibes, I think because I find Nero so cringe, I find their banter just not very fun. Fair enough. Which is why I was like surprised about, like, really, that she's one of your favourite characters. What do you find so cringy about Nero? I don't know, man. I, I can't really explain it. I don't like the character. I don't like the voice acting with him. It doesn't land for me. His one-liners just aren't funny to me. Oh, fair enough. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. I just don't I just don't vibe with him. So it's kind of like a tonal thing in the game that's not really sitting well with you at the moment, is that fair to say? Uh, potentially, yeah. It's a weird one because it's normally the sort of thing that I quite like, but I, I just don't like him. Not helped by the fact that I also don't like the way he controls, but we'll come on to that at a different point, I'm sure. Before long, Nero and Nico are attacked by a gang of Empusas, which they have to dispatch, some of which is done by Nico deliberately mowing down the demons in the van. The others are handled by Nero, who jettisons himself out of the van and uses his gun, Blue Rose, to blast some demon brains. Cue intense cutscene with like matrix styley backflips and going through the air, <laughs> shooting people in the head. So after the fight, Nero and Nico continue their way across the partially destroyed city, where they come across some military personnel fighting for their lives against incoming Impusa demons. Sensing another opportunity to demonstrate his combat prowess, Nero exits the van and begins sizing up his foes, leaving Nico to tend to a very confused soldier. At this point in the game, we're introduced to Nico's replacement for his long-lost demon arm. You remember us telling you earlier that Nico is the granddaughter of the legendary gunsmith? Well, clearly the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as Nico, acting as Nero's technologically gifted weaponsmith, has crafted him new arms in the form of Devil Breakers. Each arm that Nero equips can grant him different powers using the special abilities concealed in each arm. And using his newfound prosthetic powers, Nero is able to easily defeat the helpless demons, much to the surprise of the hapless and scared soldier. And this is an interesting mechanic, these things, because they don't last forever. They do eventually break, which That's I like right. because it means you can mix it up a little bit. Yes. That being said, I've only found one that I really liked, and I can't remember for the life of me what it's called, and it's not one of the ones written here. It's one where you um you just pick people up and start smacking them about. Oh right, and okay, then you eventually okay. throw the enemies into each other. That that one's quite neat, but most of the other ones they're cool, but they're not like overly exciting to me. Have you found the weapon called the punchline? It'll shoot out a flying rocket that'll go around and attack enemies. But if you shoot it out and then quickly press B again, you can actually jump onto it and it acts like a rocket skateboard. You can kind of move your way around. I always thought that was quite an interesting one. I picked it up, but I didn't use it. And another one that I wanted to talk about was the rawhide arm extension. Uh, I found that one really useful for just doing like uh, a fully around you melee attack. It kind of wraps your body in a load of chained whips, uh, a type weapon. So it surrounds you and any enemy that's ahead of you, behind you, in whatever direction it's going to get hit. Uh, that was a very good one to extend combos in the game as well. Yeah, it functions very similar to an ability on a different character that we'll probably end up talking about right at the end. 
And another one that I wanted to mention, because I was actually playing this one on stream and I didn't realize its full potential until I'd done a charge attack, was actually the Gerbera or Gerbera, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, cannon in the game. It kind of activates a massive hyper beam attack and it's a really, really powerful moveset that you can use with that. Typically, it just allows you to be a bit more mobile and attack people with blasting attacks, but I noticed that until I was doing the fully charged arm attacks that also destroy the weapon at the end of doing the move, you unlock some of their true potential which was really fun yeah the other one that you've written here that's quite interesting but i haven't really made much use of is ragtime which basically slows down time for a little bit on one enemy with a normal attack presumably if you did a charge attack it'd be a bunch that could be quite handy for crowd control purposes yeah i think so yeah because yeah. it creates kind of like a localized time slow field so i assume anyone that walks into that gets caught up in slow motion yeah i think it is because Horizon has a similar attack uh, and some other bosses actually where they fire a blue beam at you and you're completely slowed down so it's probably the same sort of thing as that yeah as part of these devil breakers as well the other added benefit that you've got is there's also a wire hook ability uh, that you can use to either bring yourself closer to large enemies so to create distance or you can use it to bring smaller enemies towards you and this is particularly useful because this game is all about combos and keeping up your action rating in the game by hitting as many enemies as possible and any breaks in the combat are considered bad because you're ticking down on your combo meter and you want to keep the action high um so you can use this ability to quickly zip towards enemies and close distances quite quickly or as i mentioned before bring enemies to you as well and that can be used to great effect if you're already fighting an enemy you can bring in an enemy that's far away and then be hitting two enemies at once which really increases your combat score and also as a side to that and this is kind of a staple of the series as well you can also use your pistols in the game to increase your combos as well so any time that you're unable to zip an enemy towards you and you don't have any enemies nearby you, as you slowly make your way towards them, you can be shooting them as well and do charged attacks with that. Yeah, slowly being the operative word. But there is a certain thing in the game where you just need to know about doing the right actions in order to keep up the speed. So in a scenario like that, you probably are better off using the devil arm instead. Uh, but it is very good for, for instance, knocking an enemy into the sky and then keeping them there while you make your way towards them so you can finish off a ground slam combo. There's quite a lot of freedom in terms of the way that you can mix and match up some of the moves in the game. And the only other thing that I wanted to mention about the sword in this game is it actually does have a rev option in the game that you can use to unlock different moves in the combo. With Nero's sword, at least, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is something that is is really cool, I found, in the game, because the timing of this, you can charge the attacks just by revving the sword outside of combat or inside combat, but without attacking. But the most effective way of charging up your sword is to press left trigger just after you've performed an attack or hit an enemy. And at that point, you will immediately fill up a gauge which you can then use to activate into way more combos. And if you're doing a sword combo and you time the left trigger hits precisely after every hit, you can be charging every attack with flame abilities that do a bunch more damage. And I really like that system in the game, especially with some of the really fast combos, which get you just mashing the attack button and the rev button really quickly together. Um, it's really fun stuff. Yeah, no comment because I don't find his combat fun at all. <laughs> I really don't. So what don't you like about the combat in the game? What's the what's It's, the, it's what's the Nero specifically. Uh, the control scheme is bizarre to me. Having right bumper as the aim button, having jump and dodge on the same button is really weird. This is very much staple Devil May Cry series stuff. That may be the case, but I find it very weird. And this is probably a me thing, but I find the perspective really hard to deal with. There's a bunch of times where I'll attack an enemy and I think that's got to be in range, and it's not. 
it's weird to me. I do think that there is there is definitely a certain aspect where you are at an advantage if you've played similar games to it before, particularly with the control scheme as well, because I will admit that going into this initially, it did take me a little while to be able to judge the difference between dodging and jumping as well just based on the perspectives that you were talking about there, you do kind of need to get used to adjusting your moves based on where the camera angle is and how you move as well. And it can be quite difficult sometimes to predict whether you're going to dodge an attack, whether you're going to jump over an attack or certain things like that in the game. Yeah, and it's also when I want to jump, he'll dodge. And when I want to dodge, he'll jump. It's, it's, right. <laughs> things, it's just, yeah, I don't get on with it. it. It doesn't feel very intuitive. It's very cumbersome to me. And how are you getting on with the combos in terms of the way that you've got to space out your attacks when you use the sword moves? Getting better. At this point in the game, I wasn't doing well. I was, I, I beat, I beat it all. It's fine, but like I wasn't doing very well. As we get further on, you know, I'm getting S's, double S's, things like that. I'm getting used to it, but I just, it's just odd to me and not in a way that I want to carry on learning it. It's a way that is like, I, I don't really like this. You don't vibe with that. Fair no. enough. There's a lot of games where I start off crap, but they're good fun and I like the mechanics and I want to get better. This one, so far, is not one of them. So after defeating more foes, Nero stumbles across the first official, sort of, boss in the game, which is just a tangle of the spiky tendrils that emerged from the hive structure in the city streets earlier, with a large red weak spot based at the centre of this static enemy. The boss, quote-unquote, is titled Clyfoth Roots, in reference to the Clyfoth tree, which will become more important later. With relative ease and helped by his trusty armaments, Nero is able to avoid the dangerous swings of the Clyfoth roots and destroys the central weak spot. With the boss now defeated, Nico catches us up and says that these terrible happenings aren't just taking place where we are, but everywhere else as well. Nero is convinced that somehow his misplaced arm is responsible for the disasters taking place. But how did Nero even lose his arm in the first place? Cue a flashback. Two months before the scene that just played out, and one month before Dante faces off with Horizon, Nero is helping Nico to do some maintenance on her van, which is sat in a garage. Although we don't get to see her, the voice of Nero's girlfriend, Kyrie, sounds, and she lets the pair know that dinner is served. Nico hops up to go get some grub, whilst Nero continues to work. And shortly after, a dark and ominous shrouded figure enters the garage, ducking underneath the partially closed shutter. Nero still has his Yamato-imbued devil arm at this point, which seems to glow blue in reaction to the intruder's presence. Before Nero can react, the figure grabs him by the arm and slams him against the garage wall, tearing off Nero's demon arm in the process. As Nero writhes on the floor in agony, the dark figure holds onto the detached arm, transforming it back into its sword form Yamato, and makes their exit via a portal where the flashback ends. And this is when one of Nico's funniest lines so far is, I've got to say, God damn it, man, I only left you two minutes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it seems pretty unforgiving yeah. considering Nero's just lying in a pool of blood in his yeah. garage. With his, with his blood spurting out of his arm. <laughs> Missing his arm. Yeah. <laughs> so now back in the present and in our next mission, it's time to reunite with V. So let's head into the destroyed Redgrave city to get some answers. So in this level based in the city, there's a couple of new enemies that we get to encounter. Uh, we've had a couple of the Impusas so far. This time around, we get to fight the Hell Kaina or the Kaina, which are kind of like scythed Reaper type enemies that have a couple of cool attacks. One of them involves dragging their scythe across the ground while they're charging at you. Although I will say they're not particularly strong enemies in the game, so I wouldn't forgive you if you never really paid much attention to their attacks due to the fact that you're spending most of your time just clapping the shit out of them. I spend a lot of time in the air, so they don't really bother me. Right, yeah, yeah. You can jump <laughs> yeah. over them quite easily. 
Yeah. And knock them into the air and keep them there yeah, quite yeah. easily as well. And when you knock them over, there's a lot of enemies like this, but these guys, it seems to happen to a lot. You can knock them over and they stay down for like 10 seconds. That's right. Because they're yeah. like, oh, I can't move my poor bones. <laughs> They're very good for working in aerial combos for crowd control yeah, because yeah. you can do stuff like that just to stall enemies. And uh, the other enemy that I also wanted to mention in this section is the Hell Antonora, which are heavier enemies in the game. They are large, sack-headed, dual-cleaver-wielding enemies with a broken noose around their necks. They're the big boys with two sword-blade-looking things. That's exactly right, yeah. Oh yeah, these guys are bastards. They're the first enemy in the game that actually stands up to some of your attacks. They also attack you out of a combo that you can do, and they recover quite quickly. So these are the first enemy in the game that you can't boss round quite as much as the rest of them. And they represent a bit more of a challenge. Yeah, and in a similar way to the Reapers we were talking about earlier, not the Reapers from Mass Effect, these Scythe Reapers, Hellcana, um, you can knock these guys over, but what they do is they'll charge, they'll sort of like light up purple, almost like they're charging, and then just run at you and take you out out if you try and jump at them That's so you just I... have to be a bit aware of them as will says you can't just bust them you have to be a little bit more aware of your surroundings and what's behind them basically because you're going to be have to be jumping there to avoid the attacks and the first time you actually face off against these guys they don't just give you one they give you two right away yeah in a little hole where there's nowhere really to go yeah that's right um so you're taught very quickly to be avoiding the charges and different attacks that they can do and I guess the only other elements in this mission that really gets introduced to you, and they are consistent with the rest of the game, is things like the Nidhogg hatchlings, which just serve as keys to open doors. You extract a kind of maggoty-style substance from a root, and then you're able to plant it into other roots that are blocking entrances and doors. And at that point, the Nidhogg hatchling just infects the root and clears the way forward. Yeah, and this is actually a point where I can bring up probably my biggest gripe in the game in its entirety which is specifically with these things but with actually every single item you find in the game whenever you do something there has to be a loading screen a thing pops up you wait five seconds press a get back to the action and it just completely takes all the pacing out of the game even in when you're customizing your character later on between menus there's a loading screen like what it's just insane. i can't really speak to that i mean like i'm not saying that it's not there but i honestly haven't noticed it really get in the way of anything i like, gotta say whenever you pick up a nidhog you get like a thing and it says nidhog received you wait a couple of seconds then you get the prompt to press a whenever you find an orb it's the same thing and it's just so it's just oh it's frustrating as hell to me i think you might be describing so a lot of the time when you first pick up an item in the game it will come up with a thing on the screen but i don't get it every time yes and if it was the first time only i'd be fine with it it's every single time every time i find a gold orb every single time i find a blue orb every single time i find a purple one pops up pauses my game makes me read the same description i've read a bunch of times and press a after five seconds Five seconds is probably a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's a good couple of seconds before you can press A and move on. And it's incredibly frustrating. Couple that with the fact that every time you have a fight, there's a little cutscene afterwards as well. So you just have no flow. What I will say is that is definitely true for the early parts of the game. Uh, almost every other second you are going yeah. through a cutscene. You might even defeat something like two enemies and then have a cutscene, yeah. especially in the very early portions of the game. However, the more and more you play and get deeper down, that becomes less and less the case, I've found. You'll only get cutscenes typically when you're introduced to a new type of enemy or something like that. But uh, it's an interesting thing that you've picked up on. It's not something I've even noticed in terms of picking up items and stuff like that, honestly. It's, uh, yeah, not, not something I'd even ever considered while I was playing. Genuinely my biggest problem with the whole game. It honestly doesn't even appear on my radar as being an ick or an issue with the game because it's just ingrained with me that it's like that's just what devil may cry is fair enough can't knock that but to me it's egregious 
so another one of the mechanics that this level introduces you to are the secret missions in the game, uh, which are just very minor puzzles where you'll see some markings on a wall. And by aligning yourself and standing in the right position, you can see an image. And at that point, you find your way into the secret mission. And these challenges involve things that are pretty simple. Uh, a lot of them will be just defeat enemies within a certain time limit. Some of them involve you staying mobile, uh, like floor is lava challenges, where you need to use your wire hook to zip between points and not touch the ground. And there are also challenges in the game where you'll need to defeat a certain amount of enemies whilst staying airborne and not actually touching the ground as well. So they're just sort of mini challenges that give you additional power-ups and perks in the game, a lot of the time resulting in you getting a fragment that will allow you to eventually increase your health bar, which is obviously very useful. After a little loading screen, yeah. <laughs> not a loading screen, it's more like a splash screen that comes up, yeah, but I know yeah. what you mean. And uh, the other thing in the game that I've taken a great amount of joy from is the phone boxes in the game, which are always accompanied by a cutscene. And these phone boxes act as your way of summoning Nico halfway through a level and accessing your van, and you can access upgrades and customization from there. And a lot of these cutscenes are quite fun because you're often left wondering how the hell she's actually going to manage to get the van in this random destroyed city or a complete hellscape. And it's always fun watching the cutscene to figure out just how she manages it. Yeah, I've only done one or two of these. All right, okay. Because just because I don't feel the need to customize mid-level. That's often true for me, but I'm enjoying yeah. the cutscenes enough that I bother to activate them each time I go through just to see what happens. That's fair. Um, you can do them quite a few with different characters in the game as well. And there's a typically a fun explanation. She'll come bursting through a wall or come through the ground or jump off a road above somewhere. Um, yeah, you've just got this big van and a little tiny corridor. You're like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so uh, the conclusion of this level, as with most levels in Devil May Cry, is it's topped off by a boss. And in this instance, uh, it's a Goliath boss, which I've got to say bears a very strong resemblance to the bridge demon that you fight in Dark Souls, at least from a glance anyway. Uh, for me, it was uh, not a resemblance, but it's uh, got the same belly as the red giant in uh, Elden Ring. Yes, that's also true. Yeah. So it's got a giant gaping mouth that it can open and it loads rubble in around the arena and it can fire the objects back in like a fiery ball. Yeah. Doesn't really play much into the boss fight because it's a pretty easy attack to fight, but I thought visually it's quite a cool thing to see because it's one of the larger bosses that you fight fairly early on in the game. And I did like to see his various attacks. Um, what I will say though is that this fight was over quite quickly because they're fairly easy telegraphed. And as long as you're doing the right side movements in the game, you can react quite quickly to what he's doing. A nice boss fight, good introduction to the bigger enemies in the game as well. Yeah, absolutely. So as we're in the final moments of the boss battle, the Goliath demon mentions something about trying to acquire some sort of fruit, and that by consuming it, he will be a ruler of the underworld instead of him, presumably referring to the demon king Urizen. As the battle closes, V appears, reading poetry by the famous William Blake from a book he is holding. V is accompanied by a dark-winged bird-type demon, and he also summons a large black panther from his walking cane. The magical panther morphs into a circular blade and deals a devastating blow to the Goliath demon, before V uses his cane to pierce the skull of the fallen demon, dealing the fatal blow. A large Clyfoth root structure falls into ash and reveals behind it the actual Clyfoth tree, which appears to be causing the current demon infestation within the city. V explains that the Clyfoth tree grows in the underworld and thrives off human blood. At this point, we can assume the spiked tendrils that were impaling the citizens in the streets after we were defeated by Urizen are the Clyfoth tree's means of extracting blood. 
Before we can attempt to find Dante, V tells Nero that we must first exterminate some Clyfoth roots to pave it the way first. Nico also arrives in her van, a little late to the party, and salvages a piece of horn from the Goliath demon, intending to use it on one of her new weapon designs. If we want to rescue Dante, our next missions will involve splitting up with V in order to cover more ground and attacking the Clyfoth tree at the roots. So this level is another area within Redgrave City where we're playing as Nero. Couple enemies to cover that we get introduced to in this level. Uh, we meet the Pyrobats, which are a fairly weak flying enemy in the game. They are able to shoot concentrated lava blasts out of their mouths. And they're the sort of enemy that they can occasionally put you in trouble if you're fighting another enemy and completely ignoring them. But for the most part, I would recommend sort of taking these guys out first, uh, just so that they're not an issue whilst you're fighting with the other enemies on the screen. Yes, and much like these enemies, is the next enemy we'll talk about are called Death Scissors, and uh, just like Pyrobats, it does exactly what it says in the tin. It's a death-looking figure with a giant pair of scissors, or what looks like a giant pair of scissors, because it's actually two swords, I think. A bit like both. Yeah. yeah. And these guys, um, they actually block a lot of your attacks with their initial sort of move set, if you like. But they block like, let's say five or six. I don't know what the number is, but it's arbitrary. And then they'll come into an unblockable counter that you have to jump over. Or at least that was the best way I found to do it. I'm sure you can dodge it. And the way to defeat them is you have to destroy both their weapons so that they can become open to your attacks because they can block everything even when they've just got down to one mm. they can still block everything they're not necessarily difficult on their own but if they get behind you and you're focusing on other enemies they can be a real problem uh, another way of attacking them as well is you can just straight up get behind them if you're mobile enough and you've ducked behind them you can just get free hits on them but you can't do combos on them unlike some of the other enemies in the game it's very much a jump in the air hit them maybe once or twice and then uh you're back to being blocked by them again except for in the first time you meet them is kind of in a library and you're in quite an enclosed yeah. area i did actually manage to corner one like right in the corner between two bookcases and i could just spam i did the same thing with one i caught it in the stairs in the center of the room the first time i played this through you can get them quickly but it's hard. And in terms of uh, gameplay elements in this level, they introduced the wire hook points that I briefly mentioned before in the secret missions. Uh, this just enables you to get around certain parts of the level, areas that you can't traverse over, such as going between buildings. They'll use these grapple points, and on some occasions you'll need to shoot the grapple point before it becomes usable. And uh, the other element that they introduce here is very similar to the Nidhogg Parasite. You can just destroy certain root sacks in order to clear paths as you progress later on into the area. So again, very much. It's just swing your sword a few times, open a door. Yes, but no loading screen with this one. You can just kill it. Well, you're not picking up anything, so they don't need to tell you about it. Exactly. <laughs> So and in terms of um, the actual level itself, for a lot of these, there aren't really too many things to call out until we get new enemies and things like that. But the boss at the end of this level, which is at the bottom of a route, uh, is called Artemis. And it's a winged mermaid woman with only the lower half of her face and her hair replaced by clasping fingers. Yeah, a lot of the enemies in this game, um, with it being a Capcom game, it, to me, reminded me a lot of Resi enemies. Just very, very creepy, grotesque, body horror type enemies, but with a demon flavor. It's This one was gone quite quickly for me. Um, yeah, definitely same, took yeah. this one down quicker than I did uh, Goliath Boy. And the main deal with this boss fight is that during your attacks, coupled with the fact that she's also hovering in the air, so you've got to do quite a few aerial attacks if you want to get the most damage out of it, uh, is the fact that she'll create a lot of distance and zip across the boss arena from you. But she does also have these petals that she can release, which turn into the grapple points if you shoot them a couple times. And with a bit of skill, you can use this in order to zip towards her whenever she tries to escape from you. So her weapons kind of become her greatest downfall. You can use them against her yeah. in this fight. Um, but as James mentioned, uh, this boss fight's over in pretty short order. 
So after dealing a fatal slash to the Artemis demon, a large gash opens up across their chest, revealing an unconscious woman concealed with it. As the woman begins to fall from the demon, Nero is able to catch her before hitting the ground. Nico, in her typical tardy style, arrives just after we've defeated the demon, and tells Nero that the woman is in fact Lady, one of Dante's companions who we saw lying unconscious in the arena before our first encounter with Horizon. Before we pack up for the day, Nico also retrieves a cracked purple orb from the demon, once again with the purpose of increasing our demon fighting arsenal. Nico and Nero both return to the van with Lady in tow. The scene then moves over to V in another area, talking with his flying bird, and discussing whether Nero will be powerful enough to defeat Horizon. V is also on his way to destroy another Clyphoth route, which is where this mission begins. And this I was so happy about, because as I've mentioned, I didn't really like Nero, I wasn't getting on with his playstyle, and in this mission we get to play as V. And this was an absolute pleasure really? in comparison <laughs> nice. to Nero. Because I, I don't know why... Because you don't actually fight as no. V, really. You just use the buttons to summon um, the bird and the panther yeah. that we've mentioned earlier. So Shadow the panther yes. and Griffin the bird. So this is a complete departure from Devil May Cry direct combat. Because as you said, this one you kind of stand back and let them do the work. Although you do very much have a lot of input in how you control them. You know, V does do the kill blow. You actually can't kill enemies without V doing the kill blow. Yeah, but what's interesting about V is, whereas um, with Nero, you have the arms and that's kind of your gimmick. Yes. With V, you have a gauge that builds up and it's called the Devil Trigger. And what that does is when it gets to full, you can press left bumper and summon in a big old f***ing Goliath type thing called the Nightmare. Yes. Um, and you can actually purchase an upgradable skill point. I haven't done this, where you can ride it. Yes, I did get that skill point. Which is kind of neat. I might well pick that up at some point. And it also activates additional combos that you can do with them as well. You can actually make him do special melee attacks yeah. while riding it. It's really cool. Exactly. And uh, what's nice about this is is that um, your panther and your bird have their own health bars. And if they get put to zero, it's called getting stalemated, but they can't do anything for a bit. Yeah. So if you see their health getting too low, you can summon the Nightmare and it heals them back up as well that's right yeah and it's just a really handy way of keeping the flow of the battle and keeping your combos up and this breathed a whole new life into this game for me. <laughs> it really did i was really struggling with nero and like the character whereas v is kind of he's like an emo poet who walks around with a cane and uh, i just i just much preferred this style of play i found this really interesting i can't say necessarily whether i prefer it to the uh, nero and dante gameplay that's later on in this game but i do like the way that this works out I heard that this was actually quite a difficult character to implement in the game, and I really appreciate the work that, that they put in in terms of getting this all to work. Uh, I like to be able to use a lot of the similar and familiar combo inputs that you can use for Nero and Dante, but you can also use them to bring out entirely different moves for your creature companions. So, for instance, the panther doesn't just attack them as a panther. He's got all sorts of tentacle attacks that he can use to make giant sweeping and stabbing attacks. It kind of like has tendrils that come out of him that you can stab enemies with. It's really cool. That's exactly right. He's got a bunch of moves and some that there's even like a cannon of tendrils that he can fire as well. Yeah. And the bird kind of acts like your gun. And what you can do is you can kind of get him to charge up and attack and then he'll release a burst of electricity that can stun like surrounding enemies really useful for crowd control really cool stuff that's right yes uh as well as shooting a field of electricity around him he can also shoot a chain of lightning bolts towards enemies which you can upgrade as well and there's also uh, an ability that he can use where you can get a bit more physical with the bird and cause it to do like a forward sweeping attack which knocks enemies up into the air and it pairs really well with some of the panther attacks as well yeah you can do some very cool combinations and as i say i just prefer it i think also because it's a bit new it's a bit different yes 
yeah feels a bit more unique that's what i'm definitely appreciating it for as well is it feels like a a a breath of something new into devil may cry which up until this point has been very much the same except you're operating between just nero and dante whereas v in this one is a completely new character with a completely new combat set it's cool stuff the only other thing that we didn't mention in terms of v's combat is the fact that he does have pips to his devil trigger you start off with three by default but it is upgradable you can also use a single pip of your devil trigger to actually upgrade your companions if you press the devil trigger button corresponding with one of your companions you'll briefly power them up for a short amount of time as well but you do have the added downside of the fact that you'll be delaying when you can summon in your giant nightmare creature although it's quite easy to build up devil trigger just by attacking in general it is it's not the end of the world both attacking and taking damage helps pump your devil trigger and if you're really craving for more there is even a button where you can cause v to pull out his poetry book and read a little bit of william blake and apparently that really steals his resolve and builds up another bar of devil trigger so there are ways of manually increasing it as well although i don't think that works outside of combat it's still quite an interesting feature you can do the reading bit outside of combat (laughs) it does nothing to your devil meter it just slows you down also i've got to check james have you discovered the taunt button in this game yet i know it exists but i haven't used it (laughs) but the only reason i know it exists is because you can unlock a a move it costs three million or something and it's ridiculous but it basically gives you a taunt that i imagine makes you one shot everything or something like that i'm not entirely sure how that works um i haven't bothered to invest in it yet but i have been using the taunts every so often and they're typically used in the game to fill up your style meter if you pull off a taunt and then you dodge an enemy attack and fight them back uh you're going to be getting a real big boost to your style meter so in the next level we play as v who is working his way through redgrave city in order to approach one of the root clusters and we eventually meet the boss for this level which is nidhog which is a sort of spiky armed clife of parasite that's living within the tree yeah like the little things that take forever to pick up that you can use to destroy roots yeah i guess those are his children that he's leaving around the level yeah. much like <laughs> the uh, korok seeds from the tree in Zelda. <laughs> yeah <laughs> just nutting everywhere <laughs> anyway the <laughs> anyway the way to fight this uh boss is, is mostly a combination of avoiding the mouth tentacles that he shoots out at you you play as v so the aim of the game really is to knock them down until they're defenseless and then perform the fatal blow you do this on enough of the tentacles at the right time and then nidhog will come down expose himself no not in that way but he will expose himself but kinda he is naked <laughs> he, yeah I guess yeah for a tree parasite he's not wearing any clothes so technically yeah. naked um and no nipples so can you really trust mm, him yeah probably not no uh but uh so in that situation uh then you can just exploit the window that you have for attack and deal a bunch of damage while he's weakened and uh this is another fairly simple straightforward boss fight over in short order after defeating nidhog v can see another large root structure begin falling down to the ground in the background v also notices a gigantic four-legged Clyphoff beast tearing across the city Deciding that taking on this colossal foe was a little much for him, V decides to leave the fight for someone more powerful. And it seems that despite being able to take on small demon armies, our cane-wielding hero V isn't as physically powerful as Nero. V retreats as the fearsome enemy begins to launch exploding projectiles at him and his pet demons, plunging him deep underground. And as the next mission starts, it's time for V to destroy more routes and find an exit from the underground. 
Yeah, and we have a little quick mission where we sort of run through some underground. One of the main gimmicks of this is there's a uh, tentacly type thing. It's a bit, bit different from the ones that have popped up from the ground that sort of comes down from the ceiling and can be a bit of a nuisance, but you attack it enough times and it f***s off. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Attack the weak Basically. point. And the enemy that gets introduced in this level is the Impusa Queen, which is essentially just a larger, more aggressive version of the Impusas that we fought earlier. It has a few different attacks uh, and it has a lot more health as well. Its attacks hit a lot harder, but essentially it's just a larger version. Yeah, it looks a lot more like a praying mantis as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. Got a big old thorax taily thing as well. But still with spiky head balls. Yeah, can't forget the bollocks. So after battling a bunch of demons and avoiding the large tentacles piercing the ceiling of the underground, we finally make it back to ground level. As V turns a corner, we encounter two demons standing in an open area of the street. One of the demons, who our bird demon Griffin identifies as Malthus, is ordering the other demon to search and destroy the Devil Sword Sparta. Malthus seems to think that it's too great a risk for Horizon to ignore the Devil Sword, especially given there are living blood relatives of Sparta himself still alive. Malthus then summons a portal and passes through, leaving the other demon, who is riding a horse, alone. After eavesdropping, V makes his presence known to the demon who, without saying a word, begins to attack us. This boss is kind of neat. You're kind of in a sort of courtyard area. And uh, the horse sort of charges at you. Your V is still in this, so I'm, you know, spamming him with animal attacks. Great times. And uh, he has a lance that he can sort of thrust at you. He can fire projectiles at you as well. And his main annoying attack is that he can start a charge, teleport midway through it behind you, and continue the charge. Not necessarily the hardest thing to avoid, but you have to be wary of it. Um, but a great way to get through this is to use that nightmare, baby. Yeah, absolutely. Use, use your animals to build up gauge and then just use nightmare. As much as you can, it's very heavy hitting that nightmare moves. And the other component to this boss is that his horse, the Garian horse, is actually able to change and manipulate time. And this gets represented to you both by slowing down your movement as well as speeding up his movement by up to double times. So that can make his attacks harder to avoid and predict because they're just coming at you twice as fast in certain scenarios. She just nightmare through it, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a, that's always a valid tactic. V is able to best the knights, and in the process kills the Garion horse, which as I mentioned earlier was granting the knight his powers of controlling time. The fight has left V in a state of exhaustion though, and the knight uses this opportunity to escape on foot. V will of course give chase, but only once he's had a moment to catch his breath, however this does allow a minute to reflect on the conversation we just overheard between the two demons. Malfas was clearly concerned about the power of the demon sword Sparda, especially if it was wielded by one who had inherited the Sparda bloodline. V seems to think that Nero might be able to defeat Urizen, and the chances of that will increase even more if he's equipped with the legendary demon sword. So with that, it's time to begin the hunt for the sword. Before we leave the area, V also retrieves another demon horn from the slain Gerion horse, another trinket for Nico to see if she can craft something useful out of it. Anyone else getting some serious Monster Hunter vibes from this game? I can't help but deny the line between carving up your enemies and fashioning them into various pieces of equipment and weapons to use. It's very remnant to me. Yeah, it's a similar thing as well. Yeah, yeah, taking a trophy from the enemy and crafting it into something. And turning it into a weapon. Back on the van with Nico is a still unconscious lady. Nero also sees the long legs of the lumbering behemoth destroying buildings as it moves across the city. Deciding that this enemy is too big to be ignored, it's time for Nero to depart and take on the big beastie. And this level really is just a boss fight. There's no level yeah, to it. Yeah, that's right. And uh, this boss uh, is called Gilgamesh. Big, metallic, f***ing, tentacly robot boy. His gimmick is, is that he has weak points on his legs that you have to either attack or jump and attack. And that will eventually get him to sort of collapse a little bit so that you can jump on his back. And if you've weakened him enough, he'll reveal his 
red bulbous blood brain type thing and you hit that a bunch rinse repeat he does run off a little bit and you have to sort of chase him but the level is kind of small so you don't have to run far yeah i think the only thing that you have to do in this fight as it gets a little bit onwards is use your grappling ability to use his own guns to zip onto the back of him it did get to a certain point where all of his legs were destroyed and uh, i needed like another way of accessing his back so i just zipped onto it using those instead interestingly i only had to do that once Oh, okay. yeah, I, no, I same, uh, same. Every other time you could jump up onto the scenery and sort of get up onto him as well. Okay, yeah. And and his only real attacks you have to watch out for is if you're under him, he can slam down. Yeah. And that can do a lot of damage and stagger you. Other than that, tendrils come out and kind of attack you. But when you're attacking the brain, the tendrils hit the brain, so you don't actually get hit. It's yeah. really neat. Once again, a little bit of a theme with these early bosses, at least, uh, over in quite short order. So after defeating the giant demon Gilgamesh, we see signs that it was also acting as a root for the Klyphoff tree, as it slowly turns into an ashy pollen-like substance before being carried away with the wind. Once again, Nico arrives just at the right time after the boss fight to let us know that Lady has finally woken up. Maybe now's the time we can ask her for some answers. Lady tells us she doesn't have any memory of where Dante ended up following his fight with the Horizon, but she does remember Trish was captured by the demon. Fi arrives back at the van, and shortly after, both him and Nero depart to begin their way towards the Klyphoff tree, leaving Nico and Lady to attempt to dig a path towards the area. And in the next mission, we actually get the opportunity to pick who we play as, between Nero and V. No prizes for guessing which character James picked for this mission. Yeah, I picked Nero. <laughs> no way you didn't. I did. Why would you pick Nero? You said that you didn't enjoy playing for as Nero. For the achievement, baby. Oh, right, There's okay. an achievement if you start do the mission with Nero and don't start him off with any arms, you get an achievement. Oh, fair enough. Okay, okay. So that's the only reason I did. Right. I, I would have picked fee otherwise but i'm a whore oh, fair <laughs> sold your soul for achievements uh did you pick nero as well? i did pick nero as well for this one absolutely yeah. um this level uh we're in sort of uh basically what looks like an underground train station yeah. there's a couple of new enemies that come in here um there's uh, an enemy called a riot which is kind of like a clawed lizard and i think these kind of have a secondary form that we might come on to later that has a bit more spiky armor on its back and it can kind of roll at you like a saw blade they come from the same family tree i think those yeah. two enemies yeah but these ones um they hit fairly hard but they're not too difficult you can kind of jump over most of their attacks and stun them quite easily that's right heavy telegrafter moves and the claws are retractable as well so the moment they come out you know you're in danger and they kind of glow red a little bit as they well do. a lot of tells and the other thing we're introduced to here is um it's not necessarily an enemy in amongst itself but these sort of grotesque rooty fleshy body party things these entities come out the ground and they spawn other enemies they don't actually hurt you directly but a very good idea to take them out straight away just so that you don't get overwhelmed yeah prioritize those in a combat situation definitely and the only other thing that i wanted to briefly touch on here is to do with the network play in the game which is something that to me became really apparent in this mission but after a couple playthroughs i feel like i've also noticed it happening in missions prior to this as well the network play in the game seems to pair you up with another online player and in the very first area of this level you can see through the grates v or depending on who you're playing as if you're playing as v you'll be seeing nero on the other side of this level but you can see them actually in a combat scenario of their own you do see that in a lot of levels actually now you say it yeah when you look out in the background in the distance you will see characters playing and fighting and the way that they are moving to me suggests that they're actually not an AI model, that you are actually seeing an online character fight. That even goes as far back as when you're initially in the Klyphoff tree and you look over and you see Dante facing off against Horizon at the very beginning of the game. The way that he runs around seems to be different each time and I'm almost convinced that we're watching a player play a level much further into the game. I think we're seeing another player do that. That's interesting because I'm pretty sure I'm offline but I still see them. They've probably built it into the game to replicate it in some way. But that's cool. I didn't know that was 
a thing, but that's that's quite neat. I take it you also don't, at the end of your mission, get an opportunity to rate the other player as stylish then, if you're playing offline? No, I didn't get that, no. But um, I think it is at the end of this mission. I did have V helping me. Right. Side note, you get a gold orb every time someone rates you as stylish. So I've like logged back in today and I had like four stylish orbs or whatever like that. So okay. little, they're like, nice. they don't give you anything extra than just a revive in a boss fight, but still. Yeah, yeah. I get one for logging in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every time I go in, yeah. So Nero finally emerges from the train station into the street, along with V, and enters a partially destroyed theatre area, complete with a stage. As the pair walk into the larger area, they are faced by a set of new enemies, dark-shielded knights known as Scudo Angela, being led by a powerful greatsword-wielding enemy called a Proto-Angela. This was over super quick for me, because I think I was playing with a very skilled V. Yeah, oh, this was over super quick for me as well, and I was playing with the computer. Right, like, okay. it's just, with, two, with two of you, it's just very easy. As the fight begins, the large theatre stage area crumbles, causing the entire room to begin to slide down a dirt slope as the fight continues inside. Nero and V finish the fight and jump away from the stage just as it falls down into an underground area below. As the two catch their breath, V remembers that Redgrave City was attacked by demons once before, and points to a house in the distance. Whilst Nero sets out to find Dante, V leaves in order to track down the Devil Sword Sparda. So just very quickly as we're working our way through these missions, we do encounter a new enemy type known as the Baphomet, which is essentially like a hovering goat type enemy, as the name implies, uh, and they're able to shoot ice attacks at you pretty much that freeze your character. They're another enemy in the game that warrants prioritizing over the other enemies because no one likes to be hit by projectile attacks whilst you're also dealing with close range enemies that are attacking you with melee attacks as well. So deal with yeah, these guys first, once again. And they're glass cannons, which is very handy. Yes, they go down quick. Probably the quickest out of yeah. all the enemies in the game, except the most basic Impusa enemies. Nero fights his way to the top of the Clyphoff and enters the throne room where the Demon King Urizen is residing, still sat on his throne and still looking thoroughly bored of the repeated attempts to do battle with him. Looking around the room, Nero is surprised to see no signs of Dante whatsoever. Not much time to ponder where he went though as Nero challenges Urizen to another fight, clearly fancying his increased odds thanks to the power boost of his Nico-crafted Devil Breakers. The battle begins, and to be fair, Nero does perform much better after a few upgrades and with the use of both his arms, and he even manages to briefly break past Urizen's defences and slice his hand. However, he's still not powerful enough, and like the beginning of the game, it's not long before we run out of steam and Urizen knocks us back once again. The fact we managed to slice his hand does seem to have incensed Urizen somewhat, and this time we even managed to get him to rise out of his throne. Which is good, because I was worried his legs didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, that would be an advantage in this boss fight if he wasn't able to stand. Yeah, and I'm not beyond yeah. beating a defenseless demon, I gotta say. <laughs> However, Nero is eventually defeated after the Demon King's powers proved still too strong. Just as Nero is about to be crushed by Urizen, a winged demon covered in armour plunges from the ceiling and prevents Nero from being killed. This new demon bears quite a resemblance to Dante in his devil form, However, this version appears much more large and powerful than we've seen previously. So who is our mysterious saviour? Well, Nero blacks out before we can get an answer. The scene fades to a flashback where our information broker, Morrison, is standing outside Dante's business offices, roughly three weeks before the first battle with Urizen. Morrison has a job for Dante and introduces him to his newest client, none other than V. V explains to Dante that his help is needed with a powerful demon that is about to resurrect, and that this demon is special to Dante. 
Remaining as mysterious as ever, V won't give Dante all the details, but he does explain that apparently this demon somehow shares a strong connection with Dante. Before we hear the name of the demon, the cutscene ends, and we begin our next mission in the shoes, or rather sandals, of V. Now back in the present, and searching for the Devil Sword Spider. And this next area is uh, a new area which just looks like an underground catacombs. Quite nicely designed this, just you know, typical catacomb fare, lots of blood everywhere. And uh, we do have one new enemy that kicks about in here, uh, it's called the Behemoth, or the Behemoth however you want to pronounce it, which is a two-legged demon covered in chains with split tongues emerging from its mouth that can be used to attack. And what I also noticed with this split tongue attack is you can also ride it and actually use its tongue to attack other characters in the game as well, which is quite useful. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. That's neat, though. And again, this is probably one of the more chunkier regular enemies in the game. Uh, it's not quite mini-boss territory or anything like that, but it does take a few hits, especially if you're not using your most powerful combos. Anyway, as we work our way towards the large underground area, V begins to sense the presence of the Demon Sword, and it's not long before we discover the weapon buried in a wall and surrounded by a group of demons called Nobodies. And these guys are kind of like crawling demons composed of several other demon corpses, which makes sense given our surroundings, I suppose. And they have various masks on their body, which they can change during combat in order to change combat style. And as a side note, they also have some ranged attacks. They have large eyeballs that they're able to project from their body and these things kind of chase you around. After defeating the demon Nobodies, V uses his cane to exterminate another Klyphoff root and the falling root structure then causes the Devil Sword to fall from the wall. V does attempt to wield it, however he's actually too weak to lift the weapon properly. Shortly after, we are called over to a ledge by our panther pet, Shadow, and we look down to see Dante, who is somehow still alive. Apparently, his demon presence was masked by the power of the Devil Sword all this time. We cut to another flashback, this time from Dante's perspective, where he was a child, being hidden away by his mother, Eva, as the demons begin to attack their home. Eva locks Dante in a cupboard and leaves the room to go and find his twin brother Virgil. Before long, we hear Eva screaming, apparently caught by the demons. Dante now snaps awake and looks up at V, standing over him and holding the Devil Sword Spada. V and Dante speak for a while, and he is told by V's pet bird that Nero is currently making a beeline for Horizon, and Dante's help will be needed if they had to stand a chance at beating him. We now cut to another flashback, one month before, showing Dante, V, Trish, and Lady all preparing to enter Horizon's lair. At this point, V decides to leave, citing reasons of needing to find an insurance policy should their plan to fight the Demon King fail. At this point, we can assume that V has gone to fetch Nero to help in the fight. Unfazed by V deserting them, Dante, Trish, and Lady begin working their way through the Klyphoff towards their foe. So, first point in the game, brand new mission as we're fighting our way up the Klyphoff tree towards Horizon, we actually get to play as Dante now. Yes, the main from most of the other games. Yes, indeed. And he's kind of a combination of uh, Nero and V in a very weird way. Mostly in that he has both Devil Breaker and Sword. That's basically, he has sort of both the gimmicks. Devil Trigger, I think you mean, yeah. Devil Trigger, sorry. Yeah, yeah. And Dante is kind of a master of variation, it really seems, because as well as getting hotkeyed buttons that can change our weapons in combat, and Dante starts with a shotgun known as Coyote A, as well as his staple two pistols, Ebony and Ivory, uh, he also comes equipped with Rebellion, which is his standard sword, and you also get Beowulf armor, which equips your fists and legs with different powers as well. So 
right off the bat, you've got four completely different weapons to play with. He's also got four different style action stances, one called Trickster, which increases your movement speed, one called Swordmaster that increases your repertoire of sword moves, one called Gunslinger, which, as you'd expect, increases the power of your guns. So, for instance, with your shotgun, it'll give you a rapid-fire multi-shot ability. You also get a rocket launcher later on in the game, and that can turn that into a That's slight serious. machine gun. The shotguns go, yes. Yeah, it's say. really powerful. Very good for knocking people off their feet and knocking people back. Exactly. Great damage on bosses as well. Yes, it's very strong. And to bolster that as well, you've also got the Royal Guard stance, which acts more for defence. And instead of, whereas V, when you pull his devil trigger, you summon the Nightmare, Dante goes into his devil form. His health recovers, he gets some regen, he hits harder, has some extra attacks in his combos and just higher defence speed. Just buffed. Just good times. Anyone who's played any of the previous Devil May Cry games is exactly the ability that you know and love. And it is here where we get um, the enemies that I slightly made reference to earlier, which are called Chaos, which are the lizards enemies that we had earlier um, but with extra spikes and they kind of spin at you like saw blades yeah they turn into um, circular saws they reminds me a little bit of uh, Dark Souls enemy that comes at you in some of the later sections of that game there's these like cartwheel enemies that come towards you in a couple rooms there's one room that's full of like 10 of them or something it's a nightmare zone do you mean the um, the skeletons that have the wheel yeah 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 I know what you mean yeah no that's a fair comparison and uh, what's nice about this is once you break their armour they can't spin at you anymore and then they do basically become that that other lizard enemy That's we right. spoke about earlier. Then we also have hell bats, which are kind of buffed versions of the other fire bats. The pyro bats, is that what they were called? That's right, yeah. They're exactly the same, except the fact that they just have a large fire sack on them. That explodes, yeah. Yeah, and it explodes, and it also enables them to do much more sustained flame attacks. Whereas the pyro bats just shot a little jet, these guys can kind of cover the ground for quite some time. So back to the story, we all know what happens next. Dante enters the arena and confronts Horizon, who at this point has already defeated Trish and Lady. This is basically going back to the prologue of the game. Yeah, we've kind of come full circle here. The fight ensues, and rather predictably, we are unable to measure up to Horizon in terms of raw power. We see Horizon defeat Dante and recover the unconscious bodies of Trish and Lady, explaining he has a plan for both of them, presumably fitting them inside demons in order to provide more strength to the demon king. The flashback in time suddenly ends and we are back with V, still speaking with Dante after he's been rescued. V fills Dante in on all of the events that have happened in the months since they were all defeated at the hands of Horizon. Unlike V, Dante is indeed strong enough to wield the Devil Sword Spada and sets off to rescue Nero from the clutches of Horizon. And we actually head back to um, the city ruins, which we'd actually been to already. This is the levels sort of start overlapping because you're using new characters and all the different levels. That's right. And having the Devil Sword Spada doesn't change your moves, but does give you a much bigger sword. It does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's probably slightly more powerful as well. Probably, yeah. But uh, the move sets is uh, ostensibly the same. And this one, uh, because your sword Rebellion got destroyed in the fight with Horizon, uh, the Devil Sword Spada just completely swaps out for the Rebellion now. And uh, we do get a couple of new enemies uh, in this bit. We get uh, some Hell Judica, which are scythe-armed skeletal demons in dresses. And uh, they can teleport around and close distance quickly. And the new weapon that you can encounter in this area is something that I've brought up briefly before. Uh, it is the RPG known as the Kalina Ann. And actually thinking about it, it's not an RPG, it's more of a rocket launcher. This is one of the earlier places in the game that you can unlock it, but I understand that if you found it here and you also find it later on in the game, you do unlock the ability to dual-wield RPGs as well. 
which sounds absolutely badass. That does sound jokes. In combination with the gunslinger ability, dual wielding two RPGs is just going to be crazy. And the boss at the end of this level is called uh, Cavalier Angelo, who's a knight boss with armor and a four-edged spiked sword. This guy's quite interesting because he can sort of attack at you and he uses a cloak to sort of shield himself. It's like a metallic cloak. That's right. And and just to link it back, you might also recognize this was actually the knight that we were fighting on top of the horse earlier on I did wonder that yeah I did wonder that it's the very same demon he seemed a bit bigger but I did wonder that and what's cool about this fight is um I don't know if it's because you're Dante or it's just the mechanic in general but it's probably because you're Dante with the devil sword Sparda. if you attack him at just the right time when he's attacking you you actually parry his attack and stun him a bit and you can get in and do some combos exactly right yeah and this fight was really really cool apart from when he teleports across the f***ing arena and it's such a long way away (laughs) in this game you can't sprint you can unlock an ability whereby you hold down the run button and eventually you'll speed up but it only works outside of combat yeah it was irritating when he kept teleporting away but otherwise this boss fight was excellent probably my favorite one so far I had a good time with this. As the fight with the boss comes to a head, Dante notices that he can see Trish sitting within the chest cavity of the demon, and he is able to free her with just a few more slashes with his trusty devil sword. After defeating the demon boss, a small part of his armour falls off and tumbles along the ground before making contact with the wreckage of a motorbike. Just before the boss fight, this motorbike had actually been sliced in two by Dante after it was thrown at him by the cavalier demon. Thanks to the addition of the demonic armour piece, Dante is now somehow able to wield the split motorbike as dual greatswords, which can be paired to make a rideable motorbike weapon, which is mental. It is absolutely (laughs) mental. When I unlocked this, I was like, what the f*** is this? My jaw hit the floor when I was doing this on stream. I could not believe that it was a possible thing to do. And the moveset is so crazy. The fact that you can wield them as the swords and spin around... But when you do combine them, you can attack enemies by just doing power slides and spinning around in yeah. circles, doing donuts with it. It's crazy. You can even elongate your combos by holding down the button as you're doing these attacks as well. At this point, the game is just relentless with new abilities for Dante, especially if you've unlocked the RPG as well. At this point in the game, you've now got three extremely distinct weapons that can be busted out very fluidly in the middle of combat as well. Phenomenal stuff. I was already enjoying the combat in this game already. I was not prepared to get a rideable motorbike that I can use to bash people up with. I need to f*** with this weapon more. I have used it a a very little bit. I I need to play with it more. I mean, I I think I said on stream that this is probably one of the coolest weapons I've seen in video games for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, It does raise the question though, Will. If all it takes to make a badass demon weapon is simply massing a boss trophy with an inanimate object, what do we need Nico for? Yeah, that is true. Yeah, if, if you can craft a cool weapon out of just happenstance, a demon armor touching a random bit of stuff what is nico's technical ability going into this i guess she is technically crafting it specifically for nero but uh does nero really need it when he can just pick up demon motorbike weapons off the ground well dante certainly doesn't need it (laughs) that's for sure that cool reserved for dante exactly so dante is soon caught up by v however there's no time to spare if we want to reach nero in time Dante leaves Trish with V and departs on the Cavalier motorcycle in order to rescue Nero. As Trish recovers, she begins to question V on his origins. She claims to know he isn't actually a demon as she herself comes from the underworld and would be able to sense him if that were the case. V tells Trish that he is merely a shadow of his former self who had lost everything and he goes on to explain to her how he was born. The scene cuts to a flashback where we see the shrouded figure who tore off Nero's arm shambling towards a house. It is revealed that the man we see is in fact Virgil, Dante's twin brother, and the son of the Demon King Sparta. 
Following defeat after defeat, Virgil was beginning to break down, but his goal to defeat his twin brother Dante was still clear in his mind. Virgil, now holding the demon sword Yamato, he stole from Nero, uses it to stab himself in the chest, separating man from the devil with it. And in this act, V was born. It is revealed to us that V was created from the demon half of Virgil in an attempt to remove the hindrance of human thoughts and emotions and ultimately defeat Dante. The act of Virgil splitting himself also created the demon form Urizen, which V has vowed to defeat after regaining his human soul and realising the error of his ways in pursuit of power. After Urizen was created, V then sought the help of Dante in hopes that he could fix the situation. With that large reveal out of the way, it's time to cut back to Dante, now riding his way towards Nero, who is doing battle with Urizen in the midst of the Clyphoth. So this next mission uh, pretty much is just a long path towards the Clyphoth tree. The main notable things about it, other than the fact that we still get to use our badass Cavalier motorbike weapon, <laughs> I can't get over how cool that weapon is, uh, is the fact that we encounter an upgraded version, another lizard foe known as Fury, and this one can actually teleport and blink during its clawed arm attacks. These can come out of nowhere and it can very suddenly be up in your face when a second ago it was halfway across the room from you so you've just got to be a little bit more careful watch the signs of its attacks and definitely don't take it for granted that there's space between you because very quickly that cannot be the case shotgun was very handy with this fight knock him back. if you time it right it just knocks him down and you get a huge opportunity to yeah take do some damage it's really cool you'll probably find that that is kind of the the mutually agreed technique for these guys i think a lot of enemies in the game have very specific ways that that are best used to take them out. It's just about figuring out what that technique is. Shotgun, motorbike. <laughs> always, baby. Shotgun, motorbike <laughs> is always a good solution to any problem. After travelling on his journey towards Nero, Dante finds himself standing in the home where he was raised alongside Virgil by their mother, Eva. Dante recalls the time when his latent devil powers were activated back when his brother Virgil jammed Dante's sword rebellion through his chest. Dante also ponders the reason for why he was given the Rebellion Sword by his father, Sparda. There's got to be an explanation somewhere. Well, if the Yamato Sword can separate man from devil, then what does the Rebellion do? And in what is perhaps a very large leap in logic, Dante then shoves the broken sword into his own chest, causing him to absorb the sword and activate his fully realised demon abilities. We now jump all the way back to the second fight with Nero and Urizen, the one where we got our ass kicked earlier, where the strange armoured demon interrupted Urizen from finishing Nero off. The saviour, now revealed to be Dante in his true devil form, begins the fight with Urizen, and we get to use the devil sword Dante, which is what it's called. And it kind of works as combining the movesets of the Rebellion and the Devil Sword Sparda together, mushing it. It does, yeah. Really cool stuff with this. You can press B and you kind of get loads of swords around you, kind of similar to the um, the rawhide arm that you can get with Nero. So it's really good for crowd control, I imagine. Not that that's helpful in this fight, because we're fighting a stood-up Horizon who's just a tentacly mess, basically, and much easier than his sitting down form, in my opinion. He is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you can actually get behind him and avoid his attacks. <laughs> yes, that's true, yeah. I think the implication there is meant to be that Dante has just gotten so much more powerful that the boss fight is now doable, whereas before yeah. it was tough. And um, the only other sort of difference in mechanics you get with this sword is that you can still do your devil trick with Dante, turning you into the devil form with all the same perks that we discussed earlier but if you hold down the devil trigger button you get what's called the sin devil trigger and essentially what this does is it's um it gives you a sort of higher power devil trigger like attack so you're you're in your devil form and you just hit so much harder but you do lose your ability to um regenerate health and also you can't manually deactivate it you're locked in when it's in yes but you hit a hell of a lot harder so the payoff is kind of worth it 100%. especially in a big boss fight like this yeah absolutely if you've got one 
one enemy to really focus all your power on and you want to just deal the absolute maximum amount of damage, the Sin Devil trigger is really the way to go. And as far as I'm aware, this is another new feature in the game as well, adding another level to the Devil Trigger system for Dante. And shout-outs to the shotgun, because the shotgun did a lot of work in this <laughs> Nice. The only difficult thing about this fight is when he summons his protective crystal in. Like, throughout all the fights we fought with him... Um, Horizon kind of has this protective crystal that um, means you can't hurt him directly um, while he's like spamming all his magic at you. And this crystal has a load of health. Like, Jesus oh my Christ. god, it does, yeah. But once you destroy it, you can then hurt Horizon. And, and I think I took out half his health bar before he summoned the crystal, broke the crystal, which took longer than the whole of his other health bar. As soon as it was done, done and dusted. It was difficult while the crystal was up, but otherwise it was quite easy. But again, it's to illustrate how powerful Dante now is. Yes. And also, just as a side note here, um, at some point in the game, you realise in a cutscene that within the crystal is actually contained the Yamato sword. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just used as a protective barrier to stop Horizon from getting hit, as James mentioned there, while he can spam tentacle attacks at you. But with the help of his fully realised devil potential, Dante is finally able to best Horizon in combat. However, before we can finally put an end to this pesky demon king, he is able to escape via a portal. And at this point, the Clifoff plant is now revealed to us in its entirety. But whatever that truly means, we'll need to wait for next week, as that's where we'll cap things off for this episode. And with that, we come to the end of Completionist Corner and the end of the episode. But before we go, it's time to lay out the socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pop Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on X by searching for at Total Pop Mode, or one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPF. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. And just as another cheeky uh, message there of self-promotion, you can actually go ahead and check out my progress within the Devil May Cry playthrough over on Twitch and YouTube on demand. Uh, So if you'd like to go ahead and see how I've been getting on, you can go ahead and do that. Do yourselves a favour, go check it out. See the look of excitement on Will's face when he finds a motorbike weapon. Oh my god, (laughs) absolutely. And uh, I also wanted to say uh, a big thank you to everyone so far who has supported us on social media. Um, We really do appreciate the engagement. Thank you so much for the follows and for the ratings so far. For any of you out there, if you still haven't pushed that like button, hit that subscribe button, set us five stars on Spotify, please do go ahead and do that. We would really appreciate the support and it's a really good way for us to increase the reach of this podcast and then by default also to increase the amount of content that we can provide for you guys. So we would really appreciate that. And with all of that said, it's time to close the episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for sticking around until this point, if you still are, and we'll see you guys next week. Until then, goodbye!